Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Delighted to have as my guest in this episode of Explore the Space, Dr. Nora Volkov. Dr. Volkov is a psychiatrist and the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse at the National Institutes of Health. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, also known as NIDA, is the world's largest funder of scientific research on the health aspects of drug use and addiction, and her work has been instrumental in demonstrating that drug addiction is a brain disorder. We see issues around substance use disorder, the opioid epidemic, and drug use in general in the public eye and within the public zeitgeist on a daily basis now and having Nora join us to kind of break this down, specifically honing in on the complexity surrounding this issue, as well as vulnerable populations in dealing with substance use disorder, particularly around things like synthetic opioids and high potency cannabis. The underpinnings and the importance of social determinants of health, again, are a critical part of this discussion, and she lays this all out brilliantly. It's a wonderful conversation. I think that everyone will get a great deal out of it. Before we get to it, a quick reminder, you can check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com, and you can find me on social media, at ETS Show on Twitter, and at Explore the Space Show on Instagram. You can subscribe to Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your shows. That really does help us out. If you can leave us that five-star rating and review and share with your friends and colleagues, again, that really helps us out as well. All that being said, let's get to our fantastic conversation on Explore the Space with Dr. Nora Volkov. Nora, welcome to Explore the Space podcast. What an honor. This is very, very special for me. Thank you for making some time. Mark, thanks very much for having me. I look forward to hearing your questions. And answering them, of course. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, you know, I just finished eight days on clinical service. I'm a, I'm a full-time clinical hospitalist in California. Uh, having the opportunity to speak with someone really out at the sharp edge of the epidemic of substance use disorder that we deal with in the United States, but at a different sharp edge than mine, is very, very special. Uh, I will say, and this I know is not breaking news for you, the day-to-day rhythm and life of a, of a busy hospital-based physician right now, working with people who are kind of in the throes of substance use disorder is a huge part of the daily practice. The people we admit to the hospital, people we take care of in the hospital, it is a huge part of the daily work. But in that, I, I do feel like I can be kind of consumed by what I'm seeing, also consumed by what I'm seeing in the press and on social media. So I'd like to start with that sort of just your high-level strategic view of substance use disorder addiction in the United States right now, if you could kind of summarize the current state for all of us looking through our different prisms from the way you see it, how would you sort of summarize where we are in helping and supporting people at a national level with substance use disorder? Yeah, no, and I'm glad that you're describing it, I mean, as a topic for Sharp Edge, because I actually... I do remember as a resident and internal medicine, how challenging it was to address the issues related to drug use and how basically we were so ill-prepared to do it. And this has just exacerbated uh, over the past two decades 
triggered by the opioid crisis that actually was a result of the um, health care system that became overconfident on its practices of prescribing opioids when they were unnecessary. And then that made many people vulnerable and how heroin came in. And now we are faced with the enormous challenge brought about by the, the entry of synthetic opioids, which are much more potent and they're much easier to bring into the country. And uh, the diversification on the way that, that they are being sold and distributed. So there are multiple technologies that have enabled the fast distribution of fentanyl and that had made uh, many, many people that in the past would have not been affected by overdoses from um, illicit drugs vulnerable. So it went from people that were addicted to opioids to people that were addicted to cocaine or methamphetamine, because now dealers are, are basically contaminating them with fentanyl, to occasional users that want to buy an illicit prescription drug because their physician doesn't prescribe them for their pain or they want to prepare for an for, for an exam with Adderall. And, and now they if they get their hands on one of these illicitly manufactured pills that looks like Adderall, but it's fentanyl, they're extremely high risk of overdose. So this has made the whole issue much more complex in terms of preventing and also of interventions for therapeutics. That's one. But I also don't want to basically neglect another aspect that's happening in, other, in, uh, in our country, because if we don't keep our eyes on it, we will find ourselves the way that we had with the tobacco epidemic and all of the uh, preventable deaths that happened because of smoking nicotine. As more and more and more states have legalized medical marijuana, 38 states plus DC, plus all of the recreational ones, 22 states plus DC. And we're starting to see it, and you probably are seeing it in the uh, emergency departments and in the hospital people coming in from adverse effects of uh, intoxication from high content 9-THC. And, and we're starting to understand that, that what are the medical adverse effects of, of marijuana, I think, Perhaps the, the one that has attracted the most attention is that hyperemesis syndrome, but also these, these um, very severe psychotic episodes that are being triggered by high content 9-THC marijuana that you all have to deal with. So we are having, we have to face those. So we have the overdose crisis that we are currently are actually, we have not been able to control. And in fact, it has been growing on a yearly basis, accelerated to 50% increases during the overdose, during the COVID, first two years of the COVID pandemic. But also behind it, we have the expanded utilization of marijuana by Americans, of uh, particularly those that are 18 years or older. And the highest increases actually are happening in people. Um, the rate of increase, the highest rate of increase is in people that are 65% or older presumably because they are starting to consume it as medical marijuana. So we are entering a complex pattern of, uh, of use of marijuana. And, and two, the other reality that we face is that whereas in the past you could concentrate and focus on one drug, for example, in terms as it relates to overdoses or emergency department admissions, what we now see is that more and more polysubstance presentations so people are dying with multiple drugs on board. Illicit drugs, 70% with fentanyl, but combined with alcohol, benzodiazepines, with some of the anti-epileptic drugs. Uh, so it is that the pattern of drugs that people are getting exposed to now is much more complex than it was in the past, making a, 
it's more challenging on the one hand to reverse those overdoses, but also to properly treat patients. There's two words that sort of leapt out at me as I was listening to you. And, and you know, you and I have video. This is an audio-only podcast. As I'm hearing you speak, I mean, I'm nodding my head over and over and over because that all really resonates. Two words, though, that really leapt out to me. One was complex, right? You said the word complex or complexity several times. And that was a very striking part of this narrative. This is unbelievably complicated. But then the second one that really stuck out, and it's a place where I want to spend a little time, is, the, is, is around vulnerability and vulnerable populations. That came up several times as well. How do we begin to think about that term from a place of empathy, compassion, and seeking understanding upstream? So before an overdose takes place, before a hospital admission takes place, before an exposure takes place, how do we start to identify people and communities where that vulnerability exists as healthcare professionals, but also just at a societal level? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think that we need to address the upstream determinants that are actually leading people to get exposed themselves to these patterns of right. drug use. Right. Uh, it's it's crucial because otherwise we're just going to be doing band-aids here and there. We're just doing, <laughs> yeah. yeah we're no, just doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. And and we are, I mean, we started with the prescription opioids, then heroin. Now we have fentanyl. Now we have fentanyl combined with xylazine. And that's why I also brought up the issue. Let's pay attention to um, what we're doing with cannabis, not because cannabis has the lethality at all for opioids. Fortunately, it doesn't. But we do have now more uh, interest on synthetic cannabinoids, which are much more uh, basically powerful and therefore not surprising associated with negative conditions. So how do we go upstream? And that's one of the aspects that I basically, we are prioritizing in terms of how to prevent um, individuals, because now it's, it's really shines a light into prevention because um, we saw, for example, during the first year of the COVID pandemic, more than a doubling of the deaths of adolescents from fentanyl overdoses. Okay. Now, teenagers don't seek out fentanyl. They are very likely dying from overdoses because they got one in their hands, one of those prescriptions that basically looked like an Adderall and was fentanyl. One dose kills them. So if you have this extremely dangerous illicit drug market, your strategies then, if you want to contain it, require that you do interventions on preventions that are going to target now to very diverse demographics of populations. It's not just dealing with people that have an opioid use disorder or are using misusing opioids. It's dealing with very, very diverse and, and very unique challenges on how you implement that prevention. From adolescents to that transition from adolescence to young adulthood, which is when we see an uptick in the number of individuals consuming uh, heroin. I mean, it's, that's where you see really, uh, not in adolescence, and then uh, upward. Um, the other issue too that we're observe that we need to address in terms of upstream is that not is not an homogeneous population, and we need to actually identify uh, groups that require specific attention. Overall, we know that the mortality from overdoses in our country and many other countries is at least double in men than women overall. So, so the, and this is beyond the fact that more men may be using drugs. So, so the pattern of use of, of drugs by men is more dangerous. So that's one thing. So we know, identified them as, as a factor of risk. We also know 
there are other factors of risk that actually lead someone to be more likely. And, and researchers have been looking at it and starting to use artificial intelligence models to do machine prediction. And social determinants of health are crucial ones. So yes, if you basically have already had an overdose before, yes, absolutely higher risk of overdose. But if you have uh, coming from a socially deprived environment with less access to resources, not surprising, you're much higher risk of having an overdose. And, and this relates to the fact, too, that um, we can, we can, we know that the most effective interventions that we can do right now to prevent overdoses, the most one is to write, provide medications for opioid use disorder, which is an intervention that targets just people that have an opioid use disorder, the highest risk, but it's a, a very influential one. So, so we need, that is one we need to tackle. And that's why I say there's not one thing that is going to address everything, but that we have not yet succeeded sufi- sufficiently. So for example, 80% of people that die from an, an overdose basically were never given access to medications for opioid use disorder. So we have a huge uh, space to grow there. Naloxone, we speak about let's permeate the communities with naloxone, distribution of naloxone, naloxone. It works. If you provide it rapidly, it's worked. We're very lucky to have it. But again, people are not getting access to sufficient quantities of naloxone to prevent overdoses or they are consuming them alone so no one can intervene. So those are two things that target we can target more in, in those populations. But then the special population, so we have the adolescence prevention, then you have uh, older people that may be seeking these, these, these medications, prescriptions illicitly because they cannot get them from their clinicians, also requires different type of strategies. And then among all of these, you have women, right? And women that take drugs. I mean, a fact that people are not realizing is that overdose mortality in maternal, in maternal mortality, death from overdoses is one of the main, main factors that's accounting both for the very significant rise in maternal mortality in the United States, is one of the most consequential factors, much greater than homicides, much greater than suicides. Actually, when, when you put it, Overall, the medical categories like COVID, hypertension, eclampsia have ha- contributed higher, but it's, they are multiple together. This is one overdose mortality is the single one with the highest rate of accounting for mortality, maternal mortality in our country during pregnancy and the 12 months that follow. So that requires targeted interventions. And then two, the, the other data that that came around that I, I do want to focus attention is during the COVID pandemic, we saw a separation on who were the most vulnerable people to die. And initially it was the uh, white Americans coming from uh, underserved communities, rural communities. Now the highest rate of overdose mortality and in absolute numbers uh, per rates, 100,000 population, the highest numbers are among black Americans and American Indians and Alaskan natives. So this um, basically illuminates, this happened during the COVID pandemic, illuminating again why when we're speaking about vulnerability, um, the social factors that surround someone and the lack of support systems, and including healthcare, but not limited to healthcare, are major factors that are contributing to that vulnerability. And again, reiterate and highlight women because we don't tend to think about them, pregnant women, and uh, among all, all of the 
populations, the one at higher risk of overdose, appears to be homeless people. And guess what? Women with children are at the highest risk and have been the group that where you have seen the highest rates of homelessness. So you start to see how all of these social factors enter into the practice of medicine and certainly public health. One of the great challenges that I am hearing from what you're laying out there is that term that you use, social determinants of health, right? I trained and finished medical school in 2003. I did not hear the term social determinants of health in my training. Generations that followed me did not hear that term. It's not that we weren't not learning about those items, but they didn't have that sort of umbrella. They didn't have that topic. And now we do, but we certainly have some catching up to do to get that context of where people are coming from that zip code matters and exposure to things that you're that are around you matters a great deal. Uh, and I think that there's an opportunity there. And that kind of brings up the question, as you're laying out the vulnerability piece, and obviously the extraordinary complexity of what we now are faced with, and what we need to kind of work really hard to, to, to deal with, where are the places for those who are in healthcare, the physicians, nurses, APPs, anyone basically in a healthcare environment, where are the places where the low hanging fruit for improvement, where are the things that you would say, all right, Mark, you and your hospitalist division, I would really like you to prioritize these three things. All right, your medical group in Northern California or, you know, this hospital in Florida, what is the low hanging fruit that's generalizable and sustainable that you would like to see healthcare workers and healthcare organizations prioritize to start to get a handle on what is clearly a massive, massive problem with unbelievable levels of complexity. Yeah, no, in terms of low-hanging fruit, because, I mean, obviously the issue of that, what actually how to address the social determinants of health is probably the more complex of them all very, very high up there in the tree. So just sort of why yeah. no one wants to climb it. And it's very, so tall a tree that it takes a long time to climb up there. I would say- The analogy that, is a good one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, but I mean, in terms of low-hanging, to me, the most uh, important one is basically making it a training, training uh, healthcare providers on the importance of social determinants of health. And this is the way that you start, because we need to change a culture that, that looks at, that emphasizes how important the support, because ultimately what it will mean is that we need to provide support to try to buffer these uh, uh, impediments to social to health in general, and we've known them for many many years, but but now it's just become so very evident. And to the other aspect that has changed is that we now have databases that have enabled us to inquire how consequential these effects are in ways that were not possible in the past. So, for example, just are I'm these publicly to... available? Like, are these databases things that we that are open source, or are they sort of within the confines of your work? No, no, that's no. stuff I would love to see. Well, the, for, for example, in terms of databases, you can link certain databases with zip codes. And zip codes actually are good surrogates of uh, neighborhood yes. support. So, so that's where we, you can actually start to get a glimpse um, of, of how wow. things are going. And, and actually, yeah. one of the aspects that I'm very intrigued about is to, the, to what extent, for example, is it possible to start to link electronic health records with, again, zip codes so that you can get a better sense, de-identified electronic health records to see how it influences the outcomes. 
Uh, and, and researchers, I think, are trying, I have started to do this with respect to the COVID pandemic, which brought to light how, how, this, uh, how important it was. And, and for us, we're also trying to do it. And, and one of the things that we did, we did a very bold study that goes by the, the acronyms of ABCD, Adolescent Brain Development and Cognition, which aims to investigate the neurodevelopmental trajectories of 12,000 children as they transition into adulthood by every two years doing brain imaging and every year doing evaluations and monitoring physical activity, social interactions with a very in-depth characterization of their social economical environments. And depositing the data on a yearly basis, open access for anyone, along with the, the capabilities and support so that researchers from anywhere in the world can take these uh, data and analyze them, even if they are not per se experts on computation and, and actually writing code necessary to do complex analysis. So this has illuminated in ways that no other single study had done in identifying how very early on these adverse social environments like neighborhood deprivation, being in a family with low income, like uh, stigma and discrimination, influence the uh, basically the, the brain development, the cognitive performance of these children, influencing their sleeping patterns, influences their eating habits. It, it is actually, uh, and that, that, what, what is valuable is not that it's showing, yes, it's important, but it's helping us identify how the diversity about how people in adverse environments respond to it and how that influences um, the brain development so that then we can target and think, well, if this person with these characteristics has a very negative impact from this, how do we basically buffer it? And, and last week, <clears throat> there was a publication out of this study of the ABCD that shows how we can actually take advantage of this that relates to your question, is they look at, well, they hypothesize where children from low-income families coming from states, because it's all over the country, and most all over the country, uh, with very high cost of living should have more negative consequences than children living in low-income families that basically have low income, come from low income states because they can't purchase more things. And then they added the question, well, how do differences in policies to supplement poverty uh, programs influence those outcomes? And they show that actually those states with high income levels that have strong poverty programs reduce the negative effects of poverty by 40% both in the psychiatric presentation of symptoms as well as in brain volumes. So here you have a, a, a way that you can take science, fundamental science to a certain way, to ask a question about how these policies that we have that differ across the states ultimately influence trajectory. Of course, is um, the first of its kind study like this one at, with such a large sample but, uh, and, and obviously everything has to be replicated, but it does illustrate how we can move the needle. It's not a low hanging per se itself, but to me uh, what it does, and, and, and when you particularly pick it up from, from prior uh, studies that show that providing economic support 
to low-income families and, and help on how to guide them, educate their children, and result in, in very significant positive effects. So education, training, and, and economic support, which is not something that per se we do as, as physicians, right? Yet if you want to have an impact in public health, we need to start to tackle ways in which we, in which we can do that. And, and Medicaid has an innovation program that allows for pilot projects to test this. So that's what I would say. As, as, as low as I could find it in that very, very tall tree. That's right. And I think that's really helpful. But if we shift the focus, and this is, a, I just, I can't miss this opportunity since you're here. We, you know, I mentioned that I'm full-time clinical hospitalist. So we've talked about sort of the public health and the policy part. If, if you could envision you're shadowing me on rounds and we've got 16 patients to see and some percentage of those patients have substance use disorder. Uh, that's just part of the usual practice. But they're admitted for something else. Most of the time, they're admitted for something else. They have pneumonia. They were in a car accident. They have a hip fracture or some surgical issue. And the substance use disorder is on the problem list, but it's not the primary reason for admission. You're shadowing me on rounds. You're shadowing a, a hospitalist in 2023 on rounds. What are the skills, the hard skills, that you want to feel comfortable when you go to bed at night that I'm good at to manage the substance use disorder and the withdrawal syndromes in the hospital setting uh, that we can, again, that are generalizable, easily accessible, part of sort of, you know, a CME environment. What are the things that you would say you need to, this is part of your skill set, you need these hard skills? I would say that any hospitalist, any clinician for that matter, but certainly in the hospital, you should be able to properly screen someone from substance use disorder, and you should be able to initiate treatment. If it is uh, opioid use disorder, you should be able to initiate buprenorphine treatment. And you should be able to manage the withdrawal symptoms. I mean, it is as you are in the optimal environment to manage withdrawal symptoms. You are in the optimal environment to initiate buprenorphine treatment. And, and it's not any different from the things that hospitalists do. And in fact, I would make the point that some of the clinical conditions that you have to initiate treatment are more, more complex than necessarily administering buprenorphine. So the, it, people shouldn't be, physicians shouldn't be intimidated. And if it's a very complex case, like you do for anything else, you can call the specialist. So now one of the things that, that I would say has happened over the past 10 years, there has been an increase in physicians that are uh, specialized in the treatment of addiction medicine. So in many of the hospitals now have access to these consoles. And, and so that allows you to do in cases that are as basically you feel competent that you can manage, initiate buprenorphine and then refers for consultation. So because an aspect that's going to be very important is that when that person leaves the hospital, you want to ensure that there is continuity of care. And that's where the specialist can help actually ensure that when the person will not be left alone once they leave the hospital, which is something that's very unfortunate in our country, that the this, uh, treatment of substance use disorder is so fragmented that when someone goes to an inpatient, then they leave and there's no support. And so as they go into the stages on the clinical cascade, there should be bridges that link one with the other. And that's where taking advantage of that uh, Addiction, addiction specialist consult could be extremely helpful. 
in the absence of the addiction specialist, because I can hear my colleagues texting me saying, Mark, we don't have one, um, you know, or they're they're fully booked. They're totally oversubscribed or our region just doesn't have one. Um, and I've trained in a major city and we didn't have one then. Um, I'm really fortunate. One of my good buddies is our addiction specialist and I'm able to call him when I have a question or need help. I think I'm the exception to the rule as a hospitalist, knowing that I have that resource. Are there tools that you would want us to have or to a, a proxy, perhaps how we can link to primary care or something like that to again, because the gap that you identified, 100%, the fragmentation of care, 100% agree. That is the reality uh, on, on the, um, at the front line, without a doubt. Are there things that we can do to sort of build that confidence and decrease that fragmentation? Like when I go back on service next week um, that are kind of tangible and actionable from the place where you sit, which is obviously the strategic one uh, and the policy one, how do we kind of bridge that together? Because when I have someone with your level of expertise, uh, it, it's the sort of questions that I have to have to be able to ask. No, no, absolutely. And I think that, the first thing is you as a hospitalist take the lead and actually organize yeah. the hospital so that the primary care physicians are able to actually take over that patient when they leave to ensure that they are properly managed with buprenorphine. And right now, this should be made easier by the fact that the waiver has been removed. So any clinician that, yeah, the X waiver, any clinician yeah. that actually is able to prescribe opioids that have gone through that training on how to uh, properly prescribe them and monitor should be able to prescribe buprenorphine. And by the way, now we have extended release buprenorphine, so you can do an injection, which will make it so much easier to manage that patient by primary care physicians. I think that that is a key element. And, and two, um, I would also proactively not just reach out to the primary care physicians, but the other one is to ensure there's behavioral health support in the hospitals. Because this is relevant not just for addiction, but also for mental illness. And, and that, that actually could give you a support system that then you could take advantage for referrals if you need more specialized care. But because there may be situations where the management is very difficult. And what I can tell you in terms of management, what are some of the hardest cases that I've seen myself? People that have an opioid use disorder that also have severe pain. Probably, I would say this is, the, again, one of the most, most challenging. And, and the pain specialists don't feel comfortable necessarily addressing it. So that's where you do need to, to reach out to a specialist on the treatment of addictions. And the other one is people that have an opioid use disorder or other uh, alcohol use disorder, for that matter, or other substance use disorders with um, psychiatric disorders that are not well controlled. So patients that have bipolar or major depression or schizophrenia and have addiction and they're not being treated properly, those are, can be quite complex. They respond to treatment, but they may require greater expertise than, than a primary care physicians may not be comfortable. And I think that in a psychiatrist, I mean, it is a specialty that in principle, theoretically, has the uh, expertise to to handle these complex cases, but but there are multiple barriers, and I sort of says take the lead, but be aware that one of the barriers that we have been discussing is that the reimbursement that uh, clinicians get for the management of individuals with substance use disorder is lower than what they get for management of other medical conditions. So 
the incentives there are weaker. And this is as some an aspect, I think, on on the decisions, those that are deciding how much to reimburse, that should be changed because it is interfering with a willingness um, of clinicians to to properly treat patients. I think we've had the opportunity to sort of lay out some of the key friction points in what is a generational issue. I mean, it is, we're confronted by it every day. Uh, the complexity is staggering. It's, it's hard for people who don't do it, who don't actually do the work, or for those who aren't actually struggling with it to fully grasp the complexity and the severity and the gravity of these situations, both you know longitudinally and when someone is in a crisis. For for those who do want to kind of continue to gather information, learn more, get better at this, what are some resources that you like to direct people to? Where are some you know websites, courses, things of that nature? Where do you like to send people who say this is something that I feel really inspired to get better at? Yeah, no. First of all, uh, I would uh, welcome them to come to visit our NIDA website because we have resources that go for clinicians, for patients, for parents, for teachers. So they targeted. But also a major resource is at SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse um, and Mental Health Administration. And they are the ones that are responsible for deploying the prevention and treatment of substance use disorder, the main providers of, re- of funds to treat these conditions. And they do have websites also that allow you to identify the um, specialty providers that exist or what support systems may exist in your particular jurisdiction and community. So these are the two ones that jump immediately into my brain. There are also foundations and private organizations that have started to develop um, databases and access to information for people that are struggling with substance use. But I would basically, these are the two ones that come in top of my, my brain. That's wonderful. There'll be links to those in the show notes as well. Or this was really wonderful. This was uh, it's it's hard to sort of hear that the strategic view of what we're dealing with and seeing and struggling with in the hospital, in the clinic, and as a society every day. It really is as complex as it feels. But that's okay. It's better to have that knowledge and insight and be able to move forward than to have some to sort of not to not have that same grasp. I think that we're only going to tackle this when we have that level of shared understanding. So for you to come in and, and share with this level of transparency is really wonderful. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. But, but one good question I want that to end, Mark, is the reality sure. is that they are, these are challenging and complex, but also we have extraordinary creative brains. And it's not just our isolated brains. It's the, That's right. the power of our brains working together. And we have science. I mean, so we can develop solutions and strategies and develop innovation. So we have an extraordinary opportunity right now. We no just look at what we did with the vaccine development on the antivirals. I mean, the short period of time. We can do that. I mean, and so that's why I say, yes, they are complex, but it is sort of not insoluble. We need to have the will, and that's what will bring down the size of that tree because it is a stigmatized disease. So we have to climb multiple layers that we shouldn't be. It should be prioritized, like just why, like why prioritize other conditions, right? Cancer, COVID, Alzheimer's disease. And this is devastating our country. I think that's a great note to sort of sound as we wind down, because I, I didn't hear you and feel like this is insurmountable. It feels like a challenge. And 
in this country, we take on challenges. What we look out for one another, right? It's part of what we grow up learning, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is how we live up to that creed uh, and how we can better support one another, acknowledging it's really, really difficult. And I think that that's the right way for us to approach this. This was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark, for having me. My thanks once again to Nora for joining me on Explore the Space podcast. There are links in the show notes to some of the key items that she suggested as resources for ongoing learning and instruction and for us to continue to share and propagate. Please take advantage of those. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show. Let us know what you thought of the episode there. Instagram at Explore the Space Show. And of course, you can email me, Mark, at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. The whole archive of Explore the Space podcast, you can find www.ExploreTheSpaceShow.com as well. We'll be back soon with more great content on Explore the Space. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Explore the Space.